Good to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Daniel chapter 8 this morning as we continue to work our way through the book of Daniel. Um, in chapter 8, I want to go ahead and give you um, a little bit of background to help set this up because in Daniel 7, if you were with us last week, your mindset might be a little bit different than what it would need to be for this morning. Last week, we saw the first of Daniel's vision sermons, as we would say, or in the first chapter of Daniel's prophetic apocalyptic visions. And so last week, we talked about that a good bit, this, this idea of apocalyptic vision, of something that's going to happen at the end of times, and, and this being a preview of what was going to happen in the very end. And so it's easy when we get to chapter 8, which is also a vision. Daniel is describing a vision that he saw, and then an angel, the angel Gabriel, is interpreting the vision for him. It's easy for us to once again think, all right, this is apocalyptic. This is about the end of times. But the truth is, I believe fully that chapter 8 is not an apocalyptic vision. It was a prophecy. So this is something that for Daniel, he's hearing, he's seeing this vision, he's hearing this explanation from Gabriel about something that's going to happen in the future. But it was the future for him, it's the past for us. This has already been completed. I believe that fully, we'll see that as we go through this text. And so we have that mindset. This is not about the end of times. This is something that's already taken place. So we get to see the prophecy itself and the fulfillment of the prophecy, which is really a neat position to be in. So in Daniel chapter 8, he's writing, in verse 1 he tells us this is the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar of Babylon. So that tells us about 547 B.C. If you want to make note of that, if you take notes, you may make note of that because that will be important in just a little bit. About 547, if you just want to say 550, but around 550 B.C., this is when this is given to him. So look with me in verse 3 as he describes the vision that's given to him. He said, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So here we see the first, very similar to last week, he begins by showing us this, this beast or this animal uh, that, that is really going to play a big part in the vision. So today, as we look at the vision, there are three things that we need to kind of grasp and get a good concept of to understand this. The first one is this ram. What does this ram stand for? What is, what is God using this uh, imagery for? So there's the ram, and then next there's going to be a goat that has a very large horn in the middle of its head. And then after that, there's going to be a small horn that's going to grow. We had to understand what those three things stand for. What does the ram stand for? What does the goat stand for? What does that little horn that grows stand for? If we get those, we'll be well set up to understand the point of this text. So here we see this ram. And if you were with us last week, you were, some of you were somewhat frustrated. Because if you've read Daniel 7, you probably came in and you said, All right, these four beasts... Brother Zach's going to tell us which kingdom each of these beasts stand for, and then you got here and I didn't. 
And I didn't go, I didn't try and go into detail about this one stands for this kingdom, this one stands for this kingdom, and that's frustrating to some people. Sorry if that's frustrating to you. But I am going to today. I believe fully that this realm stands for the Persian Empire. Now, why? Why would I feel confident? Why the change of heart, Brother Zach? Why do you now all of a sudden feel confident telling us who this animal stands for? Well, there are a lot of things that we see in the text. In verse 3, he sees the ram standing there on the bank, and it had two horns. And both were high or great, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Well, the the Medo-Persian Empire that came after the Babylonian Empire had two parts together. It had the the Medes, which were a great empire on their own, and it had the Persians, which were great and greater and came up later. They worked together, and so we see that here. This ram that has the two horns that are described in this way would be the Persian Empire. And they did, as it says in verse 4. This ram goes westward and northward and southward, and so they come from the east and they destroy all these other nations and they take over, and it says no one could stand before it. So I believe fully that this is the Persian Empire. But I will also give you the cheat notes. The reason I feel so very confident saying this is the Persian Empire isn't just because of the history. It's because in verse 20, when Gabriel, Gabriel, Angel Gabriel, is helping Daniel understand this vision, he says this, As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So really, I'm just just telling you what Gabriel told me uh, so this is the Persian Empire. All right, so now we know what the ram is. What is next? The goat. Look, at me, look with me at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful Wrath. I saw him clo- come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him down to the ground, and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds. Of heaven. Now, I'll go ahead and give you the cheat notes. If you look in verse 21, we see the same thing. We see uh, Gabriel helping us understand. He says, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So, so some of you are somewhat at least familiar with the, the Greeks and the Persians and the battles that took place between them, uh, whether you should have or not. I'm not going into that, but some of you watched the movie 300. And you're familiar with the, the, the famous battle at Thermopylae of the Hot Gates. Those are the Greeks, right? Spartans are Greeks and the Persians. And so there was this ongoing battle that went on for a long time between the Greeks and the Persians. But at one point in time, the Greeks come charging in so swiftly that you could give it an imagery as an animal that ran across so fast that its feet never even touched the ground which is the imagery that we're given here of this goat that represents Greece, that we're told represents Greece. And it comes in, and so when was that? When it had the greatest leader, arguably, that Greece ever had. Who would that be? We understand that to be Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great unites the Greek kingdom. He, he brings them across as this great force, and they destroy the Persians, exactly as we see taking place here. 
But then it says, as, as the, this goat or grease becomes great, that this great horn, this conspicuous horn, this, this prominent horn is broken. And the same thing happens, that, that they come in under Alexander the Great, and they take over much of the world, or almost all of the known world, and then Alexander the Great very abruptly dies. And what happens here in the vision? Verse 8 says, The great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Well, if you know Greek history, Alexander the Great dies. A couple of his kids try and rule, and it doesn't work well. And so what do they do? They split the kingdom into four different kingdoms. His four greatest generals, they give each of them a kingdom, and it's four different nations, exactly as is prophesied here. So all of these things take place, and you say, well, that's, that's really neat. But Brother Zach, that happened hundreds of years ago, so it's not that neat that you know it. But, but remember this, when is it that, that this is being prophesied about? About 550, about 547 B.C.? All of those things were future tense events for Daniel and the Babylonians, right? At this point in time, Babylon is the world power. Persia's not in power Greek is a set of small city-states that no one is fearing, that no one is afraid of. Nobody's ever heard of Alexander the Great. He hasn't been born yet. Yet God says all of these things are going to take place. And we can see how confusing this was for people in this day and time. Look at the last verse of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel says, And I, after seeing this, he says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, this is after God tells Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And Gabriel explains the whole thing to him. After that, Daniel says, I didn't understand the vision. This was such a hard thing for him to understand. These things that were going to happen in the future of, of names and places that he's never heard of or that are not anywhere near what they're shown to be in this vision. He didn't understand it. But what really stands out to me about verse 27 is something in this vision was so bad that Daniel says, I was appalled by the vision. And he says, and after seeing it, that he was overcome and was sick. For several days. What in this vision is so terrible that it makes Daniel sick and appalled? Well, look with me in verse 9, and that's where we see the third thing, right? We saw the ram, that's Persia. We saw the goat, that's Greece. But now there's this little horn that's really a large player in this story. Verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of the four horns, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, or we would usually call it the promised land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to one who spoke, to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, 
for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So here we see what was extremely appalling to Daniel in his vision. He sees this vision, and all right, there, there's a ram, and there's a goat, and the two of them fight. No big deal, right? Then the horn of one is broken, and it comes four horns. No big deal. You know, that's not going to appall you. That's not going to make you sick. But then out of one of those four horns grows another one, and this horn grows up to be great. And it starts attacking this way and this way, and then it attacks the glorious land. It's attacking the promised land. This leader that it represents is attacking God's people. And it says that, that not only his people, but in verse 11 it says, And the regular burnt offering was taken away from the, the prince of the host. So the, the burnt offering that the people sacrificed regularly at the temple in Jerusalem was taken away from them. They weren't able to do this. It says, And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. And so what he sees here in this vision is this, this ruler that's going to raise up and is going to be great and strong and is going to attack God's people and is going to attack God's city and is going to take over God's temple and is going to make it so that they cannot make sacrifices there anymore. And it's going to kill many of God's people and rule over many of God's people. And as Daniel sees this, because these aren't just God's people, these are Daniel's people, right? These are his family members. And this is appalling to him and this is sickening to him. He can't, can't imagine this taking place. But point one really has to do with this horn right here. I believe that the ram in Persia and the goat in Greece are really just historical background that are helping us to get to this, this one here, this little horn. So point one, there would be an exceedingly strong ruler that would openly attack God's people, right? That's the prophecy that we see here. The prophecy is there was going to be this, this exceedingly strong ruler that was going to openly attack God's people. Daniel sees this in a vision, and it scares him, and it appalls him, and it makes him sick. And he has trouble understanding this dream, rightfully so. Again, he doesn't know Persia is a superpower. He doesn't know Greece is a superpower. And so then we, we've been through those things, but then as, it, as Daniel's having trouble understanding this, I told you that God tells Gabriel, Gabriel... Make this man understand the vision. That's what it says in verse 16. And so then Gabriel walks through it. Let me interpret this dream for you, this vision for you. So look with me in verse 18 as we see the interpretation. We'll move quickly here because we've already talked about some of this. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep. This is Gabriel speaking to him. I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power." And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes." 
and it shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So here we see Gabriel helping him to understand it and helping us to understand this because we understand the ram is Persia, we understand the goat is Greece, but we have to understand, I think, to fully appreciate the historical context of this prophecy. It's important, I think, for us to, to believe that we know who this little horn is as well. And so I'll give you the name with the disclaimer that I could be wrong. I feel very confident in it, and it's a consensus among almost every Bible scholar I've seen or read or talked to, and that is that this person, this little horn, refers to Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, as many people call him. So why why do we feel why do I feel so confident that this could be Antiochus Epiphanes? So if you walk through this right, there's Persia and they're defeated by Greece, and, and Greece has the great leader, Alexander the Great, verse twenty one, the great horn between his eyes is the first king, but when that horn is broken, four others arose. Four kingdoms shall arise, and that's exactly how it happened, right? Alexander dies, they split Greece into four different kingdoms. And then, out of one of those kingdoms comes this other ruler. Well, one of the four kingdoms is the Seleucid Empire. Later, one of the rulers of the Seleucid Empire is Antiochus Epiphanes. He fits the bill of so many of the things that we see here. He is a king that is bold, that does great transgressions. Verse 25 says that this one would be uh, great in his own mind. Well, you know why he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes? Because it was the idea of there being a revelation that he himself was a god. He referred to himself as a god instead of a man. There's somebody who's pretty great in his own mind. We see this idea of, of this, this horn when it grew up, of it attacking the glorious land. Well, Antiochus leads the Seleucids to attack Jerusalem. And it says that this, that this horn would succeed, and he was successful. He took over Jerusalem. He took over the temple. We see that there's this prophecy that this horn would come up, and it would stop the burnt offering. You know what Antiochus did when he took over the temple? He quit letting them make the morning and evening sacrifices. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple of our God in Jerusalem. He said that he was God and that people would worship him. It says that many of the hosts of the saints were given over to him and he killed and took over many of God's people. So he fits this bill through and through. Antiochus fits all the things that we see of this great horn, this leader that was going to come. Now, one reason that I want you to make note of that date of 547 B.C. is because that's when Daniel was given this vision. And this is amazing to me. Because when Antiochus was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire and fulfilling, I believe, many of these prophecies, was about 167 B.C. We're talking over 350 years later. But God knew. 350 years before any of these things took place, God knew where it was going to happen and when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. But he also knew this, how it was going to end. God knew that this was going to happen, but he had a plan. Look at verse 13. This is in Daniel's vision. He sees two angels speaking to each other. 
Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled under feet? He said, How long is this going to take place, these terrible things? How long will this last? And then the angel, not speaking to the other angel, turns to Daniel and says, For 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Then look at verse 19. Gabriel speaking, he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And now some of you hear that and say, Brother Zach, you missed it. Because you said that this is not apocalyptic about the end of time. But that says, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. But... When we look very carefully, verse 19, it's not the end of time, it's the end of the indignation. Another good word for us for indignation is rebellion. So what Gabriel says here, he says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen at the end of this rebellion. Antiochus and the Seleucids are going to rebel against God, and they're going to rebel against God's people, and I'm going to tell you how that ends. I'm going to tell you what happens after that. And we see that in verse 25. It says, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. When Antiochus got to the point that he thought that he could not be opposed or stopped by anyone, he rises up, not just against people, but against the prince of princes, against the king of kings. He raises himself up to be an enemy of God, to attack God. And what happens then? He was broken by no human hand. God put an end to Antiochus and to this rebellion and restored everything just as he had said that he would. Point two, this ruler was allowed to reign for a while but was humbled by God at the appointed time. I want you to make note of that. I'm saying this ruler just in case I'm leaving room for error. If it wasn't Antiochus, whoever this ruler was, God said this ruler is going to come up and he's going to do these terrible things, but after he does, God's going to put an end to him. God allowed this to take place for a while. He allowed him to reign for a while, but then humbled him at the appointed time. Just as he did Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar, we see that in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's great, and Nebuchadnezzar gets too big for his britches, and God humbles him. He goes insane and loses his mind until he recognizes that God is who God said he was. And then we see Belshazzar. Belshazzar gets too big for his britches, and he gets the big head, and the handwriting was on the wall. And he was destroyed. And Antiochus, or whoever this ruler is, lifts himself up and says, I am a God, you will worship me. And God puts an end to him. Just like he has every other evil ruler that has come. They rule for a while, but none of them has the authority that God has. None of them lasts forever. Now the 2300 mornings and evenings, I'm not going to go into that because... It takes a lot longer than most of you want to stay here this morning. But if you want to discuss what that might mean, come and see me, the imagery, the metaphorical teaching of that. But I do know that it says this, God had a set number of days. He had a set period of time that this would take place, and he also knew how and when it was going to end. So the last thing I want us to do, we've seen this, we see the text, we understand the vision. 
But some of you are thinking right now, I feel like I've been not listening to a sermon, but to a history lesson. There's a lot of history here. And some of you are thinking, Brother Zach, listen, I've been living in the middle of a pandemic all week. And I'm trying to send my kids back to school, and I'm trying to figure out what that looks like right now. And my work has been stressful. And, and I'm thankful to understand more about chapter 8, but I didn't come here because I need a history lesson. I came here because I need something that I can hold on to. Because my life seems like it's falling apart, and my legs are shaking, and I need something that I can stand on. How is this going to help me make it through this next week? So really quickly, I want to show you four ways that I believe that this teaching does that. The first one is a reminder that God is in control. I believe it's the main point of this chapter, but I believe it's the main point of the book of Daniel. Right? We've seen it over and over. Nebuchadnezzar looks like he's in charge, and God comes and says, no, I'm in charge. And Belshazzar looks like he's in charge, and God comes and says, no, I'm in charge. And here, there's going to be this ruler that was going to come, and I can't imagine being in Jerusalem. Right? And the temple is not the temple anymore. You can't go worship there. You can't go make offerings there unless you're going to worship Antiochus Epiphanes. But God put an end to that as well. Even when it looks like God's not in charge, brothers and sisters, God is always in charge. Verses 13 and 14, those two angels are speaking back and forth. And one says, how long is this going to happen? And the other one says, 2,300 mornings and evenings, which says, God has a set time that this is going to take place, and He's going to put an end to it. Over 350 years before any of this happened, God said, this is who, this is how, this is where, and this is how I'm going to put an end to it. So, brothers and sisters, if your faith is shaking because you look around you and you see this pandemic and you see school looking different than it's ever looked and you look and say there's supposed to be two hurricanes that are going to hit in two days' time and this has never happened and it looks like everything's out of control, I just want you to remember, it's not out of God's control. He's not taking a nap. He has not quit. He has not left us. He has always been in control and He's still in control now. And, and it re bleeds right into the second one as a renewed faith in God's omniscience, a renewed faith in God's all-knowing nature. I want us to be reminded when we see this, look, God, God said, Daniel, let me show you what's going to happen over the next 350, 360 years so that we could trust what he said in chapter 7 when he said, this is what's going to happen at the very end of time. Well, I can trust that because I see here God can see into the future. God does know. And so some of us, we look and we say, I don't know how God could ever make anything good come out of two hurricanes hitting the same spot in a couple of days. I don't know how God could ever make anything good come out of this pandemic. And that's true. I don't. I'm not here to tell you how God's going to make that turn into good. But I'm here to tell you this. God does know. Brothers, he saw 350 years into the future here. He could tell Daniel what was going to happen 360 years from then. He could tell me and you what's going to happen 360 years from now, 360 million years from now. He can tell you what it's going to look like, what's going to happen, how we're going to get there because he knows everything. And I pray that being reminded that God knows everything is good for your heart because it's good for my heart especially in a time like we're living, like 2020. The third thing that I see in this text that I think is a really important sub-point takeaway is this reminder. We're going to see this more in the later chapters of Daniel, but it's this reminder of this great cosmic battle that's going on. 
Right? If you're living in that time period in the 200-160s BC, it looks like the real battle is between Antiochus and the Seleucids and between the Maccabees and the Jewish people. But the truth is, the real battle behind the battle was this battle of, of the evil one trying to lead a rebellion against the righteous one. Satan trying to attack God as he has always tried to undermine the work of God, always tried to attack the people of God. And we see this in verse 24. The first part of that verse, talking about this little horn, this great leader, it says, His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And then whenever we see how, how he's humbled and how he's defeated, in verse 25, it says, When he rises up against the prince of princes, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So the power of this evil leader is a power that's outside of him and that's greater than him. I believe that, that refers to Satan. The power of the one that's going to stop him was not Judas Maccabees. It was God defeating him. And we've seen that over and over. God's the one that defeated Nebuchadnezzar. God's the one that defeated Belshazzar. We see it over and over throughout all of history. And this is just a reminder to me of what we read in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 when we're told to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, we sometimes get caught up in thinking that Everything just operates at what our eyes can see. There are good people and there are bad people, and that's just how it works. But brothers and sisters, the way that it works is there are righteous people that are redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ and set free from slavery to sin, and there are lost people that are sinful, evil people because they're being led by the devil, because they are slaves to sin. We saw that in 1 John very clearly. That's the real battle that's going on. And we can't ever forget that. In the end, we're promised that Christ is going to defeat Satan. Right? It's not a maybe. It's not an if. It's pending. It's a promise. It's coming. He is going to defeat Satan and all evil and everything bad forever and ever. That is coming. It's a glorious thing because we see, he sees the future and he tells us that's going to happen. But we need to combat evil as well. How do we combat evil? I believe by celebrating the gospel. We take this beautiful message that God sent His Son from heaven to earth to live a perfect life and to die as a perfect atoning sacrifice to make it so that people don't have to be sinners, don't have to be slaves to sin, don't have to be slaves to the power of Satan anymore. And we can share that and lost people can be set free from the power of the evil one. We're combating lostness right there. We can celebrate it and, and praise and worship God in our life because He set us free and we are fighting against the things that the devil wants to happen. He wants us to be focused on the things of this world, but we can be focused on the beauty of the glory of the gospel. And then the very last thing that I see in this text that's a good thing from my heart is a reminder that God has a set time for the end to come. He had a set time for the end of this rebellion. But chapter 7 also told us that he has a set time for the end of all rebellions. All evil, all sin will come to an end. I don't know when that's going to happen. But the promise of Scripture is that God does. He's already set that time. And brothers and sisters, it's coming. So we need to be ready. 
We need to be sharing the gospel so that others can be ready. But even though it looks like evil is winning, it is not. Even though it looks like God is not in control sometimes, He is. And even though it looks like this will never end, I guarantee you, it will. If y'all would join me, let's end by praying this morning. Father God, thank you for these beautiful reminders. Lord, I, I thank you for the overarching picture that this is not a lesson about Persia and Greece and the Seleucids, but Father, this is a lesson about who you are. Father, that, that theologically we can draw from this and know and be reminded that you know everything and that you see everything. Father, we can be reminded and we can see that you are the all-powerful one, that no one can fight against you, that no one can stand against you, that no one can defeat you. Father, thank you for these reminders. Lord, I pray that it, it strengthens our shaky faith whenever we find ourselves, Lord, crying out and asking that you would help our faith, that you would strengthen us, Lord, that, that things like this would do that. Reminders like this would do that, that we serve a God who is in control and who is always sovereign over absolutely everything. Father, who has a plan, and it's a perfect plan, who has already rescued us and redeemed us, and promised us eternal hope through your son Jesus. Lord, I pray that we share that message so that others could glory in it. So that others could respond in faith and be saved. Father, thank you for allowing us to be part of this great mission. Thank you for allowing us to be part of the kingdom that will last forever. And thank you for the promise of the victory that is to come. As we've seen it happen over and over and over in the past. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a couple of reminders before you go. We are taking up um, lighting moon, a special offering, special lighting moon offering throughout the month of August. Um, that's in response. We, had, we were able to have an IMB missionary with us a few weeks ago, and, and he helped us to see that there's been a little bit of a deficit uh, in, in giving to the International Mission Board and that they're having to cut some of the missions things that they would like to be able to do on the field worldwide. And so in order to, you say, Brother Zach, there's no way that we... Little Mount Zion can change that. No, but we can do what we can. We can't change all of it, but we can help. And so if you would be willing to give a special offering, I know it's not Christmas and Lottie Moon is usually Christmas, uh, but we can give that offering and it will go straight to missionaries on the field to help support the work that they're doing to spread the gospel in places that you and I will never go. And so I'm thankful that we have the chance to be a part of that. You can give in a special envelope and just put that in the offering plates. You can just write that in the memo section of a check. Uh, however you need to do that, but if you, as long as you make it known that that's for Lottie Moon, we'll know. If you give online, you can also click uh, on the different options of where you want that to go. Lottie Moon is one of the options, and you can give that online as well. Um, the other thing is I, I would urge you to remember and pray for those that will be in the path of the storms, two storms that are coming. They look like they could be very severe. We don't know all those details, but uh, there are a lot of workers. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of... Uh, homes and families that will be in the path of those. So we want to pray. We want to pray for the Lord's grace and favor over those things. So if, as you're praying this week, if y'all would remember that. Uh, and we will have prayer meeting this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. So I look forward to seeing some of you then. Until then, I pray y'all have a wonderful week. Thank you for coming.